Hello and welcome to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award Shortlist Podcast, part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Jessica Trainer, And I'm Caelan Hogan. In this special podcast series, we will explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award, the winner of which will be announced on the 22nd of October. For the first time, the winner announcement will take place as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. Celebrating 25 years this year, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English, worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. On today's episode, we are discussing... Washington Black by Essie Edujin, published by Serpent's Tale. So Jessica, this is a gripping novel um, about a young boy born into slavery in Barbados on a sugar plantation in the 1800s, who's named George Washington Black by his master. And in the first few pages, uh, really the reality, the very brutal reality of slavery and his experience of it as you know a young child, um, we're confronted with that first. And then the, the escape from the plantation uh, via hot air balloon um, is this sort of start of this remarkable journey from that plantation to Virginia in the U.S., uh, and then to the Arctic, um, Nova Scotia, where uh, runaway slaves um, were, you know, escaping to and trying to find some form of freedom. But the ongoing discrimination and racism experienced even there. And then we go on to London, to the Netherlands, to Marrakesh, all through the experience of Washington Black. And I think what's so interesting about this novel is it explores the sort of power dynamics within relationships. So uh, the scientist who is designing the hot air balloon that they escape on the cloud cutter is the brother of the master of Faith Plantation, uh, the British wild family, uh, who are sort of this eccentric family. The father is an explorer in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. And it really sort of interrogates all those stories that we've heard about British explorers and, and naturalists and scientists and the untold stories really behind their inventions and, and their experiences. Um, and so uh, everything from the hot air balloon to the first aquarium that's set up in London um Washington Black is sort of the unheard voice and, and this sort of untold story behind that. He's taken on as an assistant because his weight will be the right ballast for the balloon. And even though Titch, the, the man who uh, is, is the inventor of the balloon and who, who takes him on, teaches him to read and, and encourages his drawing. He's a fantastic artist. Um, and yet there is a sort of there's an exploitation in that relationship still. And uh, when we go on to the invent the invention of the aquarium, this is Washington Black's idea. And yet he is never named within history. Uh, and so, you know, this is something that I think is not spoken about and, and, and not known. Um, you know, the use of slave labor uh, in, in these inventions Um by these, you know, kind of eccentric British explorers, but, you know, the, the untold voices um, within those stories. Uh, and, and there's just so many twists and turns and, uh, you know, it spans the time from um, slavery in the West Indies to when it ends. And we're first introduced to, to Washington Black when he is a free man. He became, he got his liberty at 18 but it's a question of what is freedom and, you know, when will he actually be free? And throughout the novel as well, uh, this figure of Big Kit, who was a mother figure to Washington and a slave who was taken from her home through the transatlantic slave trade. 
and you know the the violence that is is um that she suffers uh, she is physically maimed she is broken down her agency is taken away uh, and from the beginning she has this belief that death can be an escape that death is a way to escape the violence and the suffering that if you die you will you will return to your homeland but even that is taken away from her but she remains with him throughout the book as this sort of source of power and strength um so it really does explore those those questions of power and exploitation uh within relationships um and but is also just uh you know a really gripping story of adventure uh and and washington's um just ingenuity and his uh his talent and and to see how it um it it grows and and expands through the through the book and his his relationships and experiences yeah it feels like kind of like a an act of of imaginative reclamation you know this notion of replacing the agency at the center of a story within this such an engaging magic realist framework and yet with the brutal realities of of slave existence and i'll just read a short extract i cleared the cane only my sweat was of value. I was wielding a hoe at the age of two and weeding and collecting fodder for the cows and scooping manure into cane holes with my hands. In my ninth year, I was gifted a straw hat and a shovel that I could scarcely lift and I had felt proud to be counted a man. My father? I did not know my father. My first master named me as he named us all. I was christened George Washington Black, Wash as I came to be known. With great ridicule, he'd said he glimpsed in me the birth of a nation and a warrior president and a land of sweetness and freedom. All this was before my face was burnt, of course, before I sailed a vessel into the night skies fleeing Barbados, before I knew what it meant to be stalked for the bounty on one's scalp, before the white man died at my feet, before I met Titch. And this name, you know, it, it really does, it comes to define him, but also that disfigurement, which is a result of Titch's experiment and also um, another man, Philip, their cousin, his greed. Uh, and it, you know, just marks Wash for life. It's something he has to go around with. And it's sort of this physical representation of the deep impact of of slavery and and the way that idea of ownership as well of someone being someone's property and you know the the very level various levels of ownership within relationships um that he struggles with that mm. every relationship he has is in ways defined by this by this idea of superiority and ownership and and dehumanization that he experienced as mm. a child and there's a wonderful moment in the book where titch asks him about big kit the, the the character you mentioned earlier and and any trust between the two of them is absolutely sundered because Wash suspects that there's some sort of transactional element in this and he's being asked to give more of himself. So, I mean, it seems like an incredibly richly symbolic and rewarding and, and adventure-filled universe that Essie has uh, created. So let's have a listen to your interview with her. We'll just start off with a question about um, where you are at the moment. Uh, so I'm speaking to you from Dublin. Um, where are you based at the moment and how has it been over the last few months? This has been, you know, an extraordinary year, a very difficult year. Um, how has it been for you and has it had an impact on, I guess, your writing um, or your experience as a writer over uh, the last while? Yeah, it's been very different from, <clears throat> I guess, the last year and a half uh, prior to it. I'd been traveling kind of nonstop promoting Washington Black. And, you know, I was probably at home 50% of the time. Uh, and it was, you know, very hectic, very active. Um, you know, so grateful that people were interested and that I got to do that. Um, you know, but it really doesn't lend itself to quiet reflection. Uh, always being on the move. And so in a way, uh, being forced to stop uh, you know, traveling so much and, and 
being in so many different headspaces, sort of being forced back into my office, back to my desk uh, in front of my computer, you know, confronting the blank page. That's been really, uh, it's been a challenge, but it's been something I very much needed. And so everything is slowed down. Uh, it's much quieter. Uh, the children were at home for, you know, for six months there, but that was also a pleasure uh, to get to spend the time with them. It was kind of a gift. Uh, I realize I'm speaking from a, pl a place of privilege where, you know, I can work from home and I always have worked from home. And so in that sense, you know, nothing has been disrupted. Uh, I feel in a sense, it's almost been a bit of a gift uh, to have this, this kind of bubble of, of silence. Um, you know, but I, I speak to others who, who are actually having to go out to the workforce. And I know it's been so challenging for them. So I, I have a lot of empathy for that as well. And where, where is it that you're based at the moment? Where are you living? Oh, so I'm, uh, I'm in Victoria, British Columbia, which is on Vancouver Island. Beautiful. I've, I've never been, but I've, I've heard great things. Um, and I, I think it, it was so interesting, I think, as writers to see everyone else adapt to sort of working from home and almost being validated by all the things that, you, you know, we've struggled with um, and to see everyone else react in the same way. I think it was really interesting to watch that. Yeah, it definitely has been interesting. And I think, you know, this idea of, of working from home has a lot of people you know, particularly within my family, kind of looked at it as being sort of there being no kind of work-life separation. And are you even working at all? I, you know, you get that sense uh, that people feel about writers, like, what are you actually doing? Uh, but I, you know, I think it's been eye-opening uh, in that respect. I, I fully agree with you. Definitely. Um, so uh, Washington Black is your, your third novel um, and all three are sort of works of historical fiction. Your first was about African-American homesteaders in the US and the second about jazz musicians uh, fleeing Nazi Germany or trying to flee um, and the sort of threat of being disappeared. How did you come to the story of Washington Black first and how did it take shape what what motivated you to write this novel yeah so when I started writing Washington Black um, you know I really thought I was writing an entirely different novel uh, I had come across a reference in a history book that I was reading about the the Tishborn claimant trials and you know I'd really sort of triggered this memory I had of having read a short story by Jorge Luis Borges several years earlier. Uh, and, you know, when I'd read that story initially, I thought that he had invented all of the details. So I was very surprised to discover that this was, you know, an actual, uh, an actual historical event. And so I, I, you know, I did a bit of a deep dive into it and it was just so fascinating. Um, for those of you, you know, I'll give a, a brief rundown of what those trials were. Uh, between the 1860s and the 1890s um, in England, there played out a whole series of criminal trials, um, which were centered around uh, the disappearance and presumed death of a young man called Roger Tichborn, who'd been an aristocrat uh, from the south of England, uh, who had died, um, you know, was shipwrecked off the coast of Brazil. Uh, but his mother refused to believe that he died and she put notices in newspapers all around the world and just um, you know got a response from a small town in australia from a man claiming to be her son and she immediately believed uh, that this had to be him uh, but she understood that the family at large might have some issues with this uh, especially because it would um, really interfere with the new lines of inheritance that had been established uh, you know, at, in the wake of her son's death. And so what she did was she wrote to a man who she knew she could trust to go and make the identification of her son. Uh, and this man was called Andrew Bogle. And Bogle, uh, he was, um, so Bogle had been stolen off a plantation uh, by a member of the Tichborne household when he was 11 years old. So he was a slave in Jamaica. And uh, Sir Edward Tichborne had been doing some work at a friend's plantation and had seen this 11-year-old boy and for reasons unknown had taken a shine to him 
and decided to uh, steal him away to England, where Bogle worked first as a page boy, and then he became a valet. And Bogle lived out his entire life um, in England, traveling all throughout Europe, and having you know, just a completely different fate uh, than the one that he would have imagined for himself as, as a young boy. And um, so he had retired to Australia by chance. And this is why uh, Lady Tichborne reached out to him to make the identification. Uh, and so there was a whole tangled uh, mess with that. He ended up being the main witness for the defense in, in a series of trials um, that you know, were to determine whether this imposter uh, was indeed an imposter or whether he was actually Roger. But as I was writing the story of those trials through his eyes, I came to recognize that I was much more interested in um, his earlier life rather than all of the endless details of these trials that went on for almost 30 years. I was very, very uh, interested in this idea of a like a clean break. And if that could even, you know, have been made. Um, this idea that he would have been born and raised on this plantation, um, living in very brutal circumstances, um, and then been very suddenly and un unexpectedly, uh, and, you know, just for him, completely, uh, just a, a, you know, total surprise for him to be wrenched out of those horrible circumstances uh, and then taken to live in, you know, worlds that he could never have conceived of as a young boy, I thought, okay, well, that's, that's really what I'm interested, that fracture, um, you know, how, what ghosts would he be carrying with him into his new life? Um, you know, what trauma and how would that inform his journey um, to, towards a kind of self-actualization or freedom? And I think the question of freedom is is obviously central to the novel, and the you know, sort of Wash goes through that journey trying to sort of achieve it, and it, you know, there's very various degrees um, of it, and I think it also interrogates this idea of you know the end of slavery and whether that really meant freedom for people, and you know, the struggle to achieve it, um, both personal freedom and also a wider idea. Um, of freedom um, it, you know the story of Washington Black it's about a young boy born into slavery and his journey to become a free man by 18 he escapes a sugar plantation in Barbados um, on a hot air balloon um, and with uh, the brother of, of the master of that plantation Faith Plantation uh, and it really follows this phenomenal journey from um, from Barbados to Virginia, where he meets this eccentric sort of scientist churchman who's helping runaway slaves escape to the north, um, hiding them in a, in a grave and in sort of, you know, um, and it goes from there to, to the Arctic, to Nova Scotia, uh, to London, to the Netherlands, to Morocco. Uh, and along the way, uh, you know, we... we talk about the, the slave trade, we talk about, um, you know, marine biology and, and the sort of scientific explorations of the time. What was the research like for this novel? I mean, it, it, it just covers such an, you know, expansive sort of territory, but also um, a really significant time where the slave trade was ending in the West Indies and this sort of, you know, the, this age of empire and exploration uh, was ongoing. What did you draw on um, during the writing of the book? And also, I think the accounts of of slavery and and you know the terrible impact that it had, but also the very brutal reality of it that we often aren't faced with or that we don't know as much about. Um, what sources did you draw on when you were writing the novel? Um, I mean, as you mentioned, there are just so many different elements to this novel. So uh, the sources were, uh, you know, very multifarious and and um, almost endless in a sense. I mean, I felt like I could have kept researching this novel. I could still be researching it today. Like there was just so much uh, ground to cover. Um, this was a book that I guess 
slightly different for me in that I started researching it, um, you know, long before I started writing it. I had just um, had, you know, given birth to my son. I was in this kind of strange state. I was, you know, not really in the mindset to write. And so, but what I could do was I could read. And so I, you know, I, I started with research into, uh, because Bogle had been a slave um, in Jamaica, I thought, okay, well, I've, I've really got to uh, do some research into that. And I found myself just really responding to and, and inundated with sources about um, slavery in Barbados and Barbados and how it manifested there. And so I, I kind of deviated from the, the source material in that sense and, and decided to, to really focus on that because I found that to be um, just, you know, there were just, it was very difficult research, uh, and but just in terms of the granular day-to-day uh, -day, uh, idea of what a slave's life would have looked like uh, on a plantation in Barbados, there were so many um, in just very detailed resources and, and books uh, and documents that people have scanned online, extremely, which was extremely helpful for me. Uh, but I was also researching the history of hot air ballooning uh, Richard Holmes has a very wonderful book uh, about that, um, you know, and also looking at the history of uh, the invention of the aquarium, uh, and so looking at um, Goss's texts uh, that he had, you know, his, his own texts as well as writings about him. Um, I just felt like the stack of books on my office floor was just, you know, <laughs> you could barely step into my office. It was just uh, an enormous amount of reading. And, and in some cases with some books, it was almost like this instinctive uh, relationship I had with the material. So I would sort of dive into various parts of, of these historical, uh, these histories and not maybe be reading it um, from start to finish, but just taking things piecemeal. And, and I researched from probably a year before I started writing it until, you know, I was typing the very last pages on the 12th edit. Um, and I think it's because it creates this dynamism to, to be researching constantly as you're writing and you're discovering new things and you can go back and rewrite scenes based on uh, this new information that you have. And this is what creates a kind of um, excitement or propulsion for the writer, I think, is that you are always interested because there's always something new to discover. Whereas when you're writing a novel, I find for me, especially uh, the middle part of the novel, that's where you can start to get tired as a writer. And also uh, it's maybe the part where <sighs> you don't have as much direction or you're, you're searching out for, for um, because I don't always know where my novels are going to end up. I don't have a sense of an ending before I started writing. There are some writers who are very um, amazing about plotting out everything and then sticking to that, that outline. Uh, but I'm, I'm hopeless at that. I, I plot things out and I know that, you know, by page five, I will have deviated from that. So, um, you know, researching throughout the whole process is what gives dynamism, it's what gives shape to the material, and it's what, what pulls me through as a writer. And I mean, I think Washington Black, is he's such a, a compelling narrator and his journey is so compelling that, you know, all these all the information that we end up absorbing through his his experiences it just comes so naturally and I think the pace of the novel it never lets up I you know every page I felt like I was learning something new and you know really expecting to you know or wanting to to learn the next thing and there's so many twists and turns which I don't want to give away I think in this conversation because it really is I think part of of what is so gripping in the novel is is um, the, the new things you learn and, and the suspense of it. Um, but, you know, and you talked about uh, Goss, who, who invented the first aquarium in, in London and set it up. And that's very fundamental to the novel. Washington Black actually is the person who 
uh, sort of has this idea to set up an aquarium and it's about, you know, this idea that maybe there wasn't an unnamed person and the way that, uh, you know, black people have been erased in many ways from that history, the way that his name was sort of taken off the project and he would never be known in history. Uh, and I was reading about Goss and the fact that he actually did go to, I think, a plantation in, in Alabama and he, he had assistance. He went as well to, sorry, a plantation in Jamaica. Uh, and there was one assistant who he named particularly in his book. So this was this was something that, you know, really happened. Um, and, and yet those assistants, that labor, um, you know, the, the contributions and, uh, you know, um, inventions and and creativity of of so many people that contributed to these projects was never told or was never acknowledged um was that part of the motivation was that something that motivated you in in writing about uh wash's story yeah definitely i mean it was something that i didn't from the outset start out with that intention um, you know, it wasn't so direct as that, but certainly as I was redrafting and getting to the end and starting to see the shape of the material, you know, I really got that sense that, yes, this is very much about um, the people who've been expunged from the record, um, people of color in particular, who whose contributions to um, science in this case, um, you know, we really haven't heard about. Um, when I was asked to write an article about black scientists uh, a couple of years ago, I remember coming across the story of Alice Ball. Um, I don't know if you know anything about her, uh, but she was born uh, in the early 20th century. So I think it was like 1904, 1905. And she was really a remarkable person. Uh, her grandfather was one of the first uh, preeminent um, African-American photographers. Um, she came from a family of photographers and uh, you know, her grandfather had taken um, what is arguably the most uh, iconic photo of Frederick Douglass. Uh, and so she was very much expected to become a photographer and she spent her early years in the, the uh, you know, watching her family develop film. And she realized she was much more interested in the chemical process of film development than in, you know, the actual pictures themselves. Uh, and so she became a scientist. She was, um, I think, the first black graduate student at the University of Washington. Uh, and her family was from, or had settled in Hawaii uh, years earlier. So she returned there and joined the faculty there. And um, uh, I think, you know, it was one of the first black women to, to teach uh, at the University um, of Hawaii. And she was approached by a colleague who was working on trying to find a cure for leprosy, which had sort of ravaged, um, ravaged uh, those islands. Um, and in fact, at the time, lepers were taken from, from their homes, from their spouses and children. And, put on a peninsula, I think it was the Kalaupapa Peninsula, segregated from everybody and, and left to live out their lives, um, you know, divorced from society and torn away from their families. And, you know, this was a, an enormous tragedy. Um, and so he was looking to, to find a cure for that. And, and he knew that she was brilliant. So he approached her and she ended up, you know, through much trial and error, uh, coming up with, um, with something that threw leprosy into remission. Um, this kind of way of, um, you know, it had been tried before that you would sort of inject people with, uh, with this um, serum developed from the oil of a, of a tree, a certain tree, and it, but it would always kind of lump under the skin. It would, but she found a way to, to, um, to make it so that it could be absorbed into the body. And this was enormous. Like people were able to return to their families, you know, a whole, a whole society was, was made whole again. It was quite incredible. Um, but she passed away at a very young age. I think she was 23 or 24. Uh, she was showing students how to use um, a gas mask uh, during a, you know, a lab 
assignment and she inhaled mustard gas and she died. Uh, so she didn't have a chance to write down her, her findings about, um, it was Chalmugra oil, that was the name of the oil. Uh, and the dean of the university got hold of her, her um, research and he published it under his own name and he started to market this treatment uh, under his own name. And it was only uh, when finally the objections of her colleague who had initially approached her, uh, you know, were, were taken seriously that this all got reset. But, you know, she's not somebody who we know much about. Uh, she was you know, instrumental in improving the lives of so many people. And hers is not an isolated case where you have this kind of theft. And that was fascinating to me. And, you know, it's really something that played into uh, Washington Black, this idea of unrecognized and un unacknowledged um, uh, talent and contributions. Um, it was really something that, that I was thinking about a lot, uh, especially when looking at the loss of lives uh, during slavery, because we tend to talk about the loss of bodies, um, but we, we talk less about the loss of potential and the loss of genius. And we're so familiar, I think, with these narratives of, you know, great British explorers and during the time of the British Air Empire, you know, these naturalists and people who went out into the world, um, you know, to sort of discover new things. And it's always sort of the narratives of white men, usually white British men. And the Wilde family that owns a faith plantation where um, Wash is born is sort of a family of these explorers um, and, you know, connected with the Royal Society. Uh, and and it tells sort of this that un, very old, untold story of um, the use, I guess, of slave labour. Um, you know, uh, Christopher Wilde Titch, the, the inventor, the scientist who is creating the hot air balloon and takes Wash on as his assistant, um, is you know, an abolitionist. He uh, he is kind of opposed and disgusted by um, the the enslavement of people on his family's plantation. But there, you know, Wash does talk about the silence um, that you know persists. That he doesn't question it or he doesn't intervene. And he also uses slave labor to create the cloud cutter. Um, and that that issue of, of exploitation and, and the power dynamics of relationships is explored in great complexity within the novel and, and Wash's relationship with Titch. Titch, you know, escapes with him, you know, teaches him to read, brings him along, encourages his drawing um, and his, you know, involvement in, in scientific um, creation. But at the same time, I think as the novel progresses it's that questioning of that relationship and whether it was exploitative and the motivation um behind Titch's actions and it, it seems to come down to this idea of sort of redeeming white men or saving white men rather than actually uh supporting the the, the real freedom or independence of um of black people uh I, you know, what was it like to explore that that power dynamic and and the complexity of it? Yeah, it was central to the you know the building of Titch's character um, and for what I was trying to express um, about this instinct um, uh, that the abolitionists are you know had for for saving. Um, for sorry for ending um, slavery and the slave trade, and you know I had been reading an Eric Foner book about this about abolitionists um, in America, and um, also a Hawkschild book about I think it was Bury the Chains about the abolitionist movement in England, uh, and sort of it was interesting to um, you know to to look at those dichotomies. But what I was interested in were, you know, just these kind of isolated uh, paragraphs or sections where they spoke about, you know, these people who you think of as being these great crusaders uh, against against slavery and and you know for the cause of of, of um, liberty uh, for black men, 
and women, uh, just how, how kind of complicated some of their motivations were. So for instance, in the Foner book, he describes a Quaker uh, meeting uh, in one of the, you know, the House of Friendship in which they're discussing the plight of the black man and, and how, you know, what, what, um, basically how they can bring about the end of, of slavery and, and uh, the slave trade. And, you know, they had invited, there were three slaves who were in attendance at that meeting that evening. And those slaves were not invited to speak and they were placed, you know, they were sitting in pews that were completely separate from, you know, where everybody else was sitting. And they weren't at all consulted for their, you know, their knowledge, their experience, um, even to discuss their their histories. This was not something that was they were called on to do. Uh, and yet, here were these white people discussing, you know, how how to better the plight of of um, people like them. And you know, just so so uh, obviously, the the irony there is is just deafening. Uh, and I thought, you know, similarly, I'd been reading um, the Hawkschild book and had come across a section which, uh, in which was talking about a dinner that William Wilberforce uh, was hosting at his house. And there were, I think, three people of color who attended and he actually had established a screen so that they were, they were they were eating behind the screen, and yet there he is, you know, kind of entering Parliament and, and arguing for the the cause, the anti-slavery cause. You're just thinking there's a real disconnect there, but uh, it seems that you know he's he's unable to see this, and and how fascinating is that? And I think that was really the impetus for for Titch's character, this idea of a man who sees himself as being at the forefront of progress in so many ways. He's a scientist, he's an inventor, he's, you know, an abolitionist, uh, but he doesn't see that he's an abolitionist in name only. Um, there's a line that he speaks earlier in the novel in which, you know, I think Washington is too young to understand exactly what the the resonance of, of that is and what the implications are you know he has to be much older for for him to really question this but titch says um you know if there's anything that will keep white men from entering you know their heaven it it, it is this and you know he thinks it sounds a little bit strange but you know he's only 11 he just and you know he's not uh he hasn't sort of fully entered his own then, so he doesn't really question it, but it does sit strangely with him. And in the end, I, I would say that that is a large part of Titch's motivation, this idea of slavery as being a moral stain on the white, um, the white conscience, and that this is something that he, you know, he really finds intolerable, but he's not really looking at the day-to-day -day lives of black slaves. He's not really you know, look, parsing um, what it means to, to live uh, in such a state for you know, the entirety of your existence, which is, you know, it's just something that he's not really confronting. And so he embodies that great irony of uh, those, you know, those abolitionists that I was talking about, in which it was really a moral crusade to save the, the white man from <laughs> from his own degradation, uh, rather than really looking at at uh, the quality of black lives. That line really struck me too, and it's it's their heaven, you know, it is very significantly yes. their heaven, and their heaven yes. rather than you know a collective heaven or or one that is shared. And uh, I think that moment as well in the ship when uh, they're after landing, uh, after escaping the plantation on the ship that's um, captained by uh, a, I think a German who had become an Englishman and is you know one of a he has a twin brother there on the on the ship with him and to sort of protect or to, you know, in, in the idea of to protecting Wash, um, 
Titch says, you know, he's my property, this is my slave. And that is, I think, a moment where that the dynamic of that relationship is really called into question as well. And and Wash starts to question it. Um, so the, I think the complexities of those relationships are really brought out. But also even later in the book, when he meets uh, Tana, who is herself uh, a mixed race woman, and um, she says, I think with good intention in her mind, but she says, you know, that no one could ever chain Washington Black, you know, that it, it, it was impossible to to sort of enslave him. And he sort of, this really disturbs him because it's this idea that slavery was in some way a choice or that it depended on someone's mettle or how, you know, how smart they were or how strong they were, whether they could be enslaved. And uh, I think that's such an important sort of conversation um, where you see the dynamics, how, how those power structures affect their relationship, how racism is sort of inherent um, and inescapable, but also uh, this idea that it's, you know, a question of agency. And, and I think his experience and the experience of Big Kit, who I want to ask you about next, really show the way that this was this was a system that really uh, dehumanized people and sought to uh, take all agency um, from people. And it wasn't that question of whether whether Wash's freedom was really whether the escape was really about him or whether it was freedom is brought into question. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that moment where Tana says to him, uh, you know, nobody could enslave you. Uh, she's really trying to say you're extraordinary. You're, you know, you're, you're somebody who cannot be held down, this kind of thing. But it really is um, ultimately like she is saying that it's a question of, um, of metal, as you've said, of being, you know, the, there are the, the enslaved uh, who can't manage to get themselves out of this position. And then there are, you know, those of us who are high-minded enough to, to go on and, and he, or to get out of it. And he really takes uh, issue and offense at that. And I think, you know, he has every right to do that. It's, it's a very strange way of, of seeing things. And, you know, I think she misspoke, um, but it's, uh, just that, that impulse there is, is just so offensive uh, to him. Uh, and so he calls her on it. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the book is really this, this idea of agency. Um, you know, Washington is really, one of the things that Tana accuses him of is of not embracing this new agency that she feels he has. It's just because you're your own man, you don't have to be looking uh, always back to to the source of your freedom, which um, you know, in a very uh, sort of cut and dried way, you know, was Titch. Uh, this is technically, in a technical way, this is the source of his freedom. Uh, but she's really trying to say, you know, just because he was the technical source of your freedom, he's not necessarily um, the one who can establish what your freedom means to you now. Uh, you know, this, it's in your hands to do that, take the agency. And, you know, he really chafes at that. Um, because I think that ultimately what he comes to understand is that, uh, yes, he's in possession of this new Freeman's life, uh, which, uh, you know, in which he can kind of, I guess, make choices such as who he's going to allow himself to love, um, who, uh, sorry, what he's going to focus on in terms of his, his vocation. Uh, he can make those kinds of choices, but I think that he really recognizes that there are some choices that will, will forever be out of his hands. Um, you know, things like freedom of movement, this isn't something that, you know, it's something that when he spoke to Big Kit and she was sort of telling him what freedom was, uh, freedom of movement, seemed implicit in a lot of what she had said, but really he finds moving through the world that no, he, he is restricted in that still. There are, there are you know, arenas in which he will never be able to, to um, 
to be fully accepted, um, you know, and that this is this is just how it is. He cannot uh, restructure um, his freedom to include uh, total freedom of movement. Um, also, this idea of, as you mentioned earlier, him not being able to be recognized for his his work or his contributions to this other person's work, um, you know, that was a very real, uh, what's the word? I guess, limitation that was placed on him and that we've seen historically been placed on others. So that's another way in which uh, his freedoms are curtailed. But also in terms of how he, just how he's able to move through the world unencumbered by his trauma, like just psychologically, he's still so much um, tied to the, the trauma of his childhood, the relationships that uh, he was cut off from, uh, Big Kit, who for many years was his only source of love, uh, that these are things that he will always be carrying with him. And that in some sense, uh, or I guess still, I guess hindering his, his, his um, self-actualization as a fully freed person. These are things that are, are still limiting him. Um, you know, he has a, in a sense, a kind of PTSD. Uh, and so, I think that's the maybe the the last frontier of freedom that he doesn't really come to to recognize um, yeah, until much later in the novel, and he realizes that there's still this bond and and still this this longing to to find Titch um, as his kind of second source of love and also questioning um, what that love consisted of and whether it was illusory and why was he chosen uh, to go along with Titch and did Titch actually see value in him uh, as a human being? Did, did Titch like appreciate his intelligence or was, was there you know, some other instinct at play there? And you know, that's really disturbing to him that his whole life could be governed by, potentially by a whim. Uh, and he really needs to know, um, you know what the, what was uh, driving Titch in his choice to save him. And so there's all of this stuff that really works to create a sense of, of um, not being free and that he has to work through um, as, as he goes along through the novel. And I think even by the time we've reached the end of the book, you don't have a sense that he is fully spiritually and psychologically free, but that this is something that he will keep uh, having to construct and reconstruct for himself as he grows into adulthood. And and Big Kit is sort of a source of strength for him, I think, throughout the book. You know, she was a mother figure to him. Uh, and the first page describes her as the strength and power of her, uh, a woman who is taken from her home in, in Dahomey, uh, you know, through the transatlantic slave trade and we see the the brutal impact of slavery on her, you know, physically she's maimed and beaten and um, then psychologically, I mean, when we really see the agency taken from her is when she becomes sort of a servant in the big house and uh, Wash doesn't even recognize her because of the change. But in the beginning, she talks to him about death as a form of freedom and this belief that uh, when you die, you return to your homeland and it's a way of escape. And I think this is something that, you know, Toni Morrison um, explored in her writing. And actually, there's there's an Irish uh, play called On, On Trill, where a woman kills her daughter, um, her, her infant child, as a way to escape sort of systemic um, abuse and control. She's been institutionalized because she's an unmarried mother. Um, and so it's, it's something this, this idea of female agency, um, runs throughout the book and is this source of freedom and, and also this guilt, I think that he escaped and had his freedom, whereas Big Kit never did. Um, how central, how important was it for you sort of exploring the experience of Big Kit and, and writing about her uh, and sort of creating her character? 
Yeah, she was so essential uh, for me. Um, this idea that she, for him, I mean, she's this, um, she's this parental figure. She is, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, she's his mother. She's his only uh, source of love. She's his only source of guidance. And the fact that she was born um, salt water, uh, meaning that she was born in Africa and has made the, the journey um, in the Middle Passage, gives her, for him, you know, this extra sort of uh, uh, authority, I guess. I mean, our parents, when we're young, are everything to us. They're larger than life. They're, they're these huge figures of authority who we look up to and, and who we, you know, feel have the answers for everything and must know everything. And, you know, it's no different for Wash looking at Big Kit. And so when she tells him, you know, death is a door and this is, this is how you gain your freedom, it's terrifying for him, but uh, he accepts it because she is all knowing. And for her, I mean, she was, she's such a complicated figure. She is somebody who embodies a lot of um, attributes of, I mean, she's got a lot of physical power. She's formidable physically. She's a very sort of large, uh, strong woman. And, and, you know, all the other slaves are terrified of her. Uh, she has a, a great kind of, she wields an almost like spiritual power over them as well. Uh, she curses them. And, and so they really are all terrified her uh, as a kind of practicing witch, I guess. And so, you know, she seems to him to be an extremely powerful figure who nobody can bring down, that she is, you know, she's in control of so much. But she clearly, you know, when he comes to see her later on uh, at that dinner scene where he looks over and he sees this kind of hunched old graying woman with whose um, shoulder has been severed and who's sort of limping around. And he, you know, he's in the room with her for quite some time. And it's only towards the end of the evening that he recognizes her because she's been so brought down. I mean, this is utterly shocking uh, for him. And it just completely, uh, in in some sense, you know, just he recognizes that if she can be stripped of her powers, which seemed to him so enormous, that really there's there's no hope. Uh, she was his central source of hope, um, and you know, to have this idea that death is a door and that you can control, if you can control nothing else, you can at least control the means of your own death, um, that that is taken from her, um, you know, and, and she's rendered just completely uh, to him, uh, this kind of inert figure, it's devastating. It totally uh, destroys his his um, his sense of hope. It's It's just completely, uh, world shattering. Uh, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think that it's remarkable how that is explored, but also that I think the power that she, at least in his mind, retains, even though she is sort of physically broken and mentally broken by that system, I think her her agency sort of almost lives through him in her his memory of her and what he's inspired in him uh you know and and she is kind of that source of of agency in many ways that he returns to um not titch as his sort of savior not anyone else it's big kit who he always uh, sort of returns to as a source of inspiration and power and i think that's that is hopeful i think in a way in a book um that she she at least lives through him um you talked about freedom of movement and, uh, you know, the the role of, of Canada, the history of Canada as a place where, um, you know, people could escape to and find, you know, a degree of freedom is very significant in the novel. And it was and you mentioned at the end, sort of in the in the there's a guide at the end for further reading, which I think was brilliant. Um, but you also talk about 
the question of oppression and what voices are being silenced now. I was interested in, you know, what is happening in Canada now as a place, you know, that has been very open to to refugees and people seeking protection. Um, but this question of, of whose voices do you think are being silenced now and and you know, who do we need to listen to and how do we how do we create more change um, now to ensure that that voices aren't silenced? I was interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, you know, I feel like there's two two strands in that question. So uh, I'll just start by talking about the historical, um, you know, the historical or the history of Canada in terms of it being the terminus for the Underground Railroad, um, which is something that is much celebrated in our history and as it should be, I mean, that's it's extraordinary. Uh, but when, you know, I really started looking and digging into the history of, of black people in Atlantic Canada uh, and actually just out East in general, uh, just this idea that you know, Canada is had historically represented this place of ultimate safety, uh, this this place um, in which um, this kind of saving place. Uh, the, you know, I really I found it interesting to look into the history and to discover that you know black settlement has always been some somewhat contentious that wasn't a case of people arriving and it being this utterly joyful experience in which they were instantly accepted and they established um, you know, townships and settlements that ran very smoothly. And you know, it, this, is, this is not the case. Um, you know, there was a riot, uh, a huge race riot um, after the, um, said there were the loyalists that we call them and the loyalists were slaves who had fought alongside the British during the American War of Independence. Uh, and they were told that if they, they you know, were loyal to the crown that they would receive uh, you know, a certain amount of land um, you know, in various uh, colonies, this kind of thing. Um, Nova Scotia being one of these places that they could uh, retreat to. And so after the war, when several of them you know, moved up to Nova Scotia, expecting to be able to homestead this wonderful land uh, and live, live out quiet lives uh, in harmony with, with the settlers who'd been there, um, who had arrived already, this was not the case. I mean, a huge race riot broke out um, in, in the late 18th century. People's homes were burned down. There was uh, this feeling that these new black newcomers were had moved up and were had stolen jobs uh, from people who were already there uh, because they were they were said to be laboring for cheaper rates. Uh, but that was that was the case that they would labor for cheaper rates. But it was because they were only um, allowed to earn a certain amount of money that this was something that was legislated, and so. You know, there was a lot of, there's always been a lot of um, turmoil surrounding Black settlement in, in Canada. Uh, if I think of, I mean, I'm from the West, uh, the West Coast, and, you know, even to think of there being established Black communities on like Salt Spring Island, which is this tiny little island uh, between here and the mainland um, and Vancouver, that this was, uh, this was a group that was constantly under attack and, and being chased out. And, and this has just always been the case. So um, in writing Washington Black, I really wanted to, to uh, pay to the lie of, of happy settlement or of, of settlement that goes smoothly because uh, I, this has not been our history. Uh, you know, even though it, it's, Quite a wonderful thing uh, that, that you know this idea of the North Star and the Underground Railroad. I think that this is something, this is something in our legacy to look back at and be proud of. But I think we should also talk about the ways in which 
um, the integration of those communities was, was not always a smooth running thing. Uh, in terms of looking at today and, and voices being heard, um, you know, I've been really heartened these last, um, I guess it's been maybe six months or so, uh, just the kinds of discussions that are being newly had about, um, I guess, questions of systemic racism and racial violence and, and racial privilege. And, um, you know, whose voices are being expunged and you know, at the expense of whom. And, and I think that this is really something that um, I'm happy that we're, we're discussing. Uh, I, think, I think we are a country that for some of us, at least, we have this notion of, multi, of being a, a multicultural society and we are always comparing ourselves to um, America, uh, it being so close, uh, and also being a multi-racial society, uh, but we look at that in terms of being the great melting pot, meaning that um, a lot of people's cultural distinctions are, are sort of rubbed off, or that seems implicit in, in that term, melting pot. Um, but you know, we have this idea of ourselves um, when balanced against that as being a mosaic, the cultural mosaic, this idea of everybody bringing, um, you know, bringing their cultural histories, or in many cases their their living cultures, uh, uh, into Canada, and this all being braided into this very sort of harmonious, wonderful, um, <laughs> this, uh, I guess, carpet. <laughs> if I'm going to continue the metaphor, but but I, you know, I think. I think again, it's not perfect. It's been fractious. There are so many uh, instances of our history that are, you know, that that aren't something to to be proud of. But I'm really pleased that we're having these conversations and people are receptive to to talking about um, about these things and and having you know indigenous rights be something that's always um, you know. The, is being discussed and something that we should continue to discuss and, and look at. Um, and, you know, I guess we're, we're looking now at Black Lives Matter uh, issues and issues of policing um, within our nation, which, you know, these haven't always, uh, these are not, we, we have very many of our own uh, shameful stories around policing uh, and, you know, just looking at these issues, and I'm I'm happy we're talking about this. I'm interested in seeing uh, where these conversations will go if we will actually see systemic change. Um, this remains to be seen. I think I think this idea of working towards a collective idea of there actually being problems is the first step, uh, rather than you know, looking at ourselves as being um, faultless as compared to America. You know, I think that these are these are first steps, these are first gestures, and I'm, I'm really interested to see where things will go. I, I mean, I think the novel is, it really does explore all those complexities and, and I think is very relevant at the moment and, and has such an sort of immediacy. You know, it's set in the 1800s, but it, it feels like, um, you know, a very timely story and something that is highly relevant um, to readers today uh, and, and really does explore all those complexities Um of you know what freedom means and within societies that might see themselves as as saviors or you know where there's this idea of of freedom to look at the sort of systemic uh, issues that endure because they do and 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 they last over time and they become internalized and I think the novel really sheds light on that. Um, finally, uh, this award is quite special because libraries sort of um, choose the books or, or vote for the books that uh, are nominated. Um, and I was wondering if uh, what if there's any libraries in particular that have been important to you as a writer or as a reader, um, whether now or or in the past. Yeah, I mean there are so many. Well, I, 
maybe I can think of three that I would really sort of uh, like to to thank uh, in a way. Um, the Toronto Public Library System, which has always made a point of running events for writers uh, and expo, you know, bringing a, a readership to and authors together, and has always made that a priority. And I think writers can sometimes uh, struggle for for any kind of, um, I guess. I guess contact with the public and and this idea of enhancing a readership and so I think a lot of writers are very grateful to the Toronto Public Library for for making that part of their mandate. Um, I would also just uh, in terms of thinking of my childhood, specifically the Shaganapi branch of the Calgary Public Library, uh, which was the branch that I visited every single weekend as a child and basically lived uh, in that in that branch um i really feel like that that place formed me i have so many uh you know i, I felt like my childhood was one of you know, it wasn't always an easy an easy one and i really felt like that library was a refuge for me and it just opened so many worlds. And I was allowed to take out as many books as I wanted and from any section that I wanted. And this was hugely formative for me. And so I'm really grateful to them. And then finally, just looking at my own children, uh, the Greater Victoria Public Library System, and in particular, the Wanda Fuca branch, which is near our home. Um, so grateful to them as well for giving my children that same feeling of, um, of just enlarging their worlds and giving them a sense of, uh, it almost gives you a sense of freedom to feel like you can walk into a library and read anything and have access to any kind of information. And there's something very exciting about that. And so I'm very grateful uh, to them as well. Great. Well, thank you so much, Asi, for your time and, and for your work. It's It's been brilliant to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award winner announcement. Wherever you're listening from, we invite you to join us for the online awards ceremony broadcast from the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin on the 22nd of October at 11am Irish Standard Time. You can book your free ticket at www.ilfdublin.com and browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.